0: Welcome to Serious Introspection Extras, an occasional audio podcast to supplement the live show with deeper discussions, interviews, and interactions. On this episode, John talks further with Matthew Goulish, who was a guest on Episode 5, and is also joined by Lynn Hickson. Together, Lynn and Matthew orchestrate Every House Has a Door, a Chicago-based performance collective that formed in 2008. Before that, there were instrumental figures in the Goat Island Performance Group. This conversation was recorded on Saturday, November 7th, in a beautiful, pixel Lake office in Helsinki's historic Suvilati district. Thank you so much to Lynn and Matthew for their enthusiasm. Remember to check out Serious Introspection Live, Tuesdays, 6pm at Madhouse Helsinki until the end of November.
1: So, so you were asking about, you were asking about opening and closing, right? Or, or, or yeah. just about, open, ask, say it again. But here
0: do, he just reframed it as a reversing course. Reversing think,
2: course, okay. Maybe we should provide some context to say that mm-hmm. there was a lecture the other night that you gave on mm-hmm. poetics as the object, wait, what was the title?
0: Uh, the Poetics, A Poetics of the Thing Outlived. Of the Thing Outlived. It's a phrase from Henry James.
2: Right. And this seemed to provoke a lot of the students in the audience because of the format of the lecture. And probably exactly what I loved about it, which was that it was really a series of openings, which is also what I said about your books, that it, mm-hmm. that it's a way to ask questions and then shine a light on new directions. That seems to be what some people had a problem with. So my question about... Closings was when when do you in your own work say okay it's time to stop opening windows to things and start to maybe work with what we've already asked mm-hmm. and kind of maybe retreat or not retreat reflect I guess mm-hmm. reflect
0: yeah mm-hmm. yeah serious retrospection <laughs> um, should I talk yeah I don't well, why don't you start yeah um, well first of all um, I guess I especially lately aspire to exactly provoking exactly that response of like that sort of what was the point of that response you know some elaborately worked out detailed discourse or narration that doesn't seem to land on any sort of um uh I mean, I, did, I didn't want to get into the sort of hardcore philosophy of it the other night in the Q&A, but, um, but I won't shy away from that now. But
1: you're talking about the lecture, the, the lecture. Yeah. yeah,
0: the lecture yeah. we gave. Henry's brother, William James, had a term for it that he called the terminus, which is when experience um, crystallizes into a kind of conclusive thought that that then becomes a sort of a rule um, of perception. And uh, and the idea of key, of resisting that terminus or re- keeping things open, as you're saying, so that you don't learn a kind of thought habit of seeing the idea of the thing rather than the thing itself or experiencing the idea of an experience or closing off, you know, sort of... Um, Ignoring or or sweeping under the rug you know certain facts that don't fit the idea of what you think the moment is
2: is it a bit like the Buddhist not knowing concept
0: yeah, you could certainly make a connection to that, but when it comes to um uh, giving a lecture or telling a sort of elaborately constructed um, narration of some sort it's like. You also see it sometimes in like uh, spiritual stories or like the um, tales of the Hasidim or something like that where you, you read this kind of uh, spiritual lesson in a paragraph and you get to the end of it and you're like, wait, where was the lesson? What did, I, I, did I miss something? And you read it over and, and, and you can't find what exactly you're supposed to take from that. Um, so I really, I really love that. Uh, And what it does, like this sort of, and, you know, anyway, so when your question is like, when do you turn, when do you reverse course? And, um, and there, I think, I think when you ask that question, I think a little bit about like, as you were just saying a moment ago, like when you finish a big project, and you don't have another big project for a while, and you, you feel a sort of emptiness. Um, It can be good to make a project out of um, reflecting on that project that just passed, but that the reflection sort of becomes its own project somehow. Um, Because uh, it's... The lecture that we gave was sort of half that and half something. Because I find it very different to speak about performances after we've made, finished, and presented them than to speak about performances while we're in the process of making them. And, uh, you know, so there's a sort of one is more reflective and one is more speculative, and that lecture was kind of half and half. But I do think it's really important to take some time after you've finished a project to um, make a make a composition out of the reflection on that project before those impressions fade or before those thoughts completely leave you.
2: Sometimes uh, the feeling of burnout may pre- prevents that from happening, uh. which is possibly where I've been lately. And um, having just read your, your book, that The, the Brightest Light, Oh, The Brightest, bra- thing. Bra- brightest thing in the World. Titles yeah. uh, having just read that and also in your lecture, you talk so much about interruptions yeah. and this uh, focus on them. And I'm wondering, like, how do you reconcile this, this interrupted state to, to embrace the, the I think, did you say embrace the bewilderment, was the phrase you yeah, used? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the same time, reflecting and building and, and developing expertise. Because yeah. I think it's, you definitely want to develop some expertise yeah. and yeah. some feeling of growth. So that's
1: that's a real contradiction, though, isn't it? Well, you know, when when um, ironically, when we um, started, every house has a door versus goat working with Goat Island. Our idea of every house has a door was um, setting limits on the pieces and not allowing and. Um, Having closure around it, in in the sense of sources.
2: What kind of limits, like an in process?
1: Well, so so for example, with Goat Island, um, the process was. uh, a directive, why were you in pain in such a beautiful place, or something given to everybody, and people would bring in material, you would respond to that material, you'd continue, you'd be adding and adding, you'd respond to what people brought in as a response to that in a performance. And, I mean, The one thing we, limit we had there is that you couldn't come in and talk about it, you had to bring something in that was a song or a, a certain performance. When we started, uh, so that just, meant that we accumulated and accumulated, and then um, the process was editing back, whereas with Every House Has a Door, the idea was to begin with particular sources, and um, this is your idea, which I respected, it was Matthew's idea, but to not go outside of the initial, to keep reworking and thinking about the initial kind of limitations. So um, what that meant was when something was like a, a, when we were dealing with, when we are dealing with a uh, a 10-page extract that is a play, the Matador play, um, and and making solos in response to that, you can't. You, we couldn't go out and bring another um, something from another world of that, if that makes sense to you. So Goat Island, we did that all the time. So they weren't
2: arbitrary limitations. They weren't. They weren't like constraints, oh, no. like in an legal sense, like we're not going to use the letter E, nothing no. like that. No. They, they always had a sort of philosophy in relation to the content.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was. A, it was actually. Mainly around the sources we were working with, that we couldn't go outside of those particular sources. Is that true? I mean, is that your um, sense of that? Right. That that. So so I just bring that up because um, uh, that was a cre to me kind of a, a creative act with within these limitations. Now, having said that the idea of opening, you know, continuing to give permission is, you know, was there. Continuing um,
2: to give permission. I like that.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the, I think so much of um, what we think about in making work and also in teaching and even in the lecturing is um, the idea of giving people permission to I mean, we can't grant permission. But it's just how do you give yourself permission to, um, how do you just keep giving yourself permission? What the, For each individual, I think that's different. But in a lecture sense like the other night, um, I think that's an example of giving permission of what a lecture is. Um and permission I think, to the audience. Yeah, course. no, to, to the audience, to the or, or to the to student. Like I think one of the rebellions was that that wasn't the definition of a lecture, but by us doing it, it gives permission. I want to say that you know that how do I say it? It, it, it sounds grandiose, and I don't mean you know really. I don't mean this in a grandiose way. Um, and I don't think we think about that that much um, other than if I find something that it's very insidious. I think it's it, it's very insidious, for example, the way you can shut yourself down, not unconsciously even. And so I come up against myself a lot, and I have to think about giving myself permission. And and that usually means going against um, a fear. Um which has been constructed somewhere along the line of my education of what art is or, or what creativity is or what humanity is or what um, being liked is or um, those kinds of things. But um, I, I think this, um, that's off on this idea of opening and my, my response to openings and with this idea of giving permission, but with changing course, um, I think that uh, it's because you mentioned burnout. You know, because it it that that is a that is a thing. Like, um, I I can relate to that um, in the sense that I've been so immersed in something. And what what does happen is as I'm ending the immersion, I think, oh, thank God I've got all this freedom. And then the freedom brings with it um, this slowing down. And then that can be hard. I just found
2: it completely paralyzing.
1: Yes. This is really
2: like the first time in six years that I didn't have a huge, huge backlog of things to do, obligations to people. And I dreamed of this day. I was going to sit on the sofa and watch films for a week. And I didn't want to do that. I, I couldn't do anything. Yeah. It was it was really really dark and yeah. I, I don't know I I think if I've learned anything for the last six years it's to be acknowledging these cycles that come inside us of energy and creativity and engagement right. and there's times when you need to just absorb other ideas and there's times when you want to get it back right and right you can't program it in advance you don't know right. when it's going to change right. It's, yeah, it's,
1: right it's it's so true and you've got to sit with it I don't think I think it's really good to acknowledge it mm-hmm. um, and I think that. Um, as you know you're doing here talking about it, I certainly totally, I, I relate to it. So I think people have these that you're not alone <laughs> at all in them. These
2: interruptions you speak of maybe are a way, an easy way out, isn't it? Because I was six years of being constantly interrupted and never mm-hmm. feeling like I could finish anything until I stopped worrying about it. Mm-hmm. And then that just became my condition and I mm-hmm. didn't care anymore about completing tasks or completing projects. For me it was just the process that I enjoyed. Yeah. And if a new distraction came and interrupted it, I, I would really embrace it. Yeah, yeah. And then they all started to kind of close. Uh-huh. So now it's like uh-huh. time to maybe again change course for me.
1: Uh-huh.
2: But as a director speaking about this stuff, it's very interesting to me because you mentioned these, these fears that you have. And you're never on stage, are you? No. You're always Sort of your relationship to the audience is sort of mediated through Matthew and other performers. Right. Oh, yeah, totally. So yeah. it's, it's all, nice because you, your fears you can you kind of get a pass, don't you? Like <laughs> nobody sees directly into your soul, they, they look at it. They as,
1: at, well, like, it's not really, I mean, it may not be a pass in the sense that I don't know if this, well, it may not be a pass because um, usually, I would say always. People have put a trust in me who are performing. Um, We've made something together. They're listening to me and following me at times. After we've made maybe a decision together, then because they're performing, they give me the um, responsibility of directing it to make it work. So I feel um, when the piece is I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility toward everybody's... I know their concerns, I know what we're trying to do and whether it's really happening, and they've given me usually that um, task of making it work.
2: But does the trust they have in you as a director also mean they absorb your fear and they make it their own, or or maybe combine it with your own?
1: No, What do you think, Matthew,
0: though? Glenn's fearless. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> well you it say it
2: seems that way to me yeah. <laughs> Yes.
0: well you know it's.
1: I'm merciless when I direct on it's something.
0: always it, she's heard me say this a number of times but you know we've been working together for like 30 years and uh, I don't perform as much now I'm often sitting beside her as dramaturg and some pieces I'm not performing mm-hmm. I can almost never anticipate what she will say next when she's directing after all these years sometimes I can mm-hmm. sometimes I know she's going to say it's like there'll be some detail that's out of place and I'll be like okay i going to say that detail's out of place and then she'll say that detail's out of place but the but the bigger questions are like there'll be a run through or something and I'll think wow that was great the show's almost ready and then I'll be like okay we have a lot of work to do and then she'll start listing all the problems and after she says them i see them and i'm like wow that's intense that i couldn't see that until after she said it how can i be so i have mastered the art of like ignoring obvious things and she always sees them it's just completely baffling to me i guess people are different
2: well when you say obvious things are you referring to Again, the other night you talked about making the inconsequential consequential, right. and vice versa. Yeah. And so perhaps the things that you thought were inconsequential, you were intentionally digging into those because for you that would maybe be where the, the future could be.
1: Gotcha, Yeah. Yeah. I,
0: but after she says something, then it's obvious. But before she says it, I don't even see it. It's incredible. It's hard to explain. I mean. I, I go, go on. Go. On.
1: Well, no, no. I'm I'm always. Um, I mean, it's a very... I appreciate you saying that. I'm not aware of that. Um, be, but I am, because he's telling me that. Mm. And also, Daviel says that to me sometimes, yeah. too. Which is, Daviel is um, uh, a person who's, uh, right now, like an assistant director. But it's really... She helps me a lot with things so that if... So I can watch something, um, but it'll be something but this is fascinating to me because it sometimes it's something like we're um building this structure that ends up being this stage in a room and we go into the room, it's a gallery, um so it's not theater lighting, but um like I was fixated on the ceiling and that surprised you and mm-hmm. Davio. Mm-hmm. Um but it, but for me, it was like Ma- Matthew was, he was only like a foot from the ceiling, you know, like there was only two feet from the ceiling. So, but I. So I don't think that's so, so profound. But, but it does, it, it's interesting what it initiates, this kind of thing. Um, but I do, uh, I think, again, people come from different backgrounds My background was as a visual artist in LA and I was with a group that was uh, you know in retrospect, I, in retrospect, I realized we're pretty um, severe in their expectations of what we do, I guess as artists. Uh, as far as okay, so as far as this one maybe this one thing of that there shouldn't be anything there that's not necessary. Now that's a that's an aesthetic because I think that's great to have a ton of stuff there that's not not necessary for some artists you know some artists need that and like that um, but my training was much more about um, m- you know things not being there that uh, are not absolutely necessary to be there so when we were talking about not when you were talking about nine beginnings in the lecture the other night and you were talking I forget what it was. It was about the only object. The t-shirt. The t-shirt. Because what happened was we went through and we stripped every beginning of a performance down to only the necessary things that were there. So that's a certain aesthetic.
2: And that t-shirt was necessary.
1: Oh yeah. yeah. To me that was absolutely necessary.
2: But bad. it had to be that t-shirt or just an artifact of that evening? Well, no. Of that what? experience. It could have been uh, trousers instead.
1: Or no well it was said lesbians who killed so it was really like. so so you know? to me that um, it was just that was important that particular t-shirt was important plus we knew the group that 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 came from well um, that
0: was I don't know if you want to linger on this for a moment but the lesbians who kill was uh, the title of a performance by a group called split bridges, split bridges. and it had premiered the same year as that pre-show announcement. So the fact that Mary Jo was wearing that t-shirt when she made that pre-show announcement meant that she, she was sort of up on. had seen that show into it, bought a t-shirt or whatever. It really placed it in time. And so uh, plus it was hilariously really funny. Yeah. Uh, and so our first thought was we went to that, we emailed that group um, split, to Split Britch's people and said, can we get a Lesbians Who Kill t-shirt from that old show? And they were like, they said, yes, absolutely, we'll send you one. And then nothing happened, of course. So um, then we we went to Mary Jo herself, and she had the actual T-shirt. So it wasn't just like, when I say the actual T-shirt, I yeah. mean it was a T-shirt from the... It was the precisely the same T-shirt that she had worn. So that gave it a, a even a more, like, um, yeah. another level of sort of... Accuracy of reenactment
2: or something like that. Oh, reenactment. I don't think mm. you used that word before. Enactment. Actually. Yeah. No. Because I, asked, I think I asked you the night about the sort of documentarian aspect of this yeah. journalism. Now that reenactments have become a trope in documentary film, it's completely normal to just hire actors in a documentary film. Right. Yeah. It's it's twisting around that the whole question again. Yeah. 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 It seems like you've maybe uh, presupposed that with a
0: work like this. Well, there was there was, um, uh, there was a performance that um, uh, well to just say that to um, if if you take that example of like a, a reenactment for a documentary film where you have actors playing the um, you know the people, what if those actors actually wore the same exact clothing? Right. It's sort of that thinking. It's almost like, well, what would be the point of that? You know, it's almost like a mystical, like m- you make your character from the outside artificially. You act by putting on shell, mm-hmm. the shell, but the exact same clothing. I found myself saying earlier in the year that um, like, children often have to learn, memorize the Gettysburg Address and recite it when they're young. I think I did. And, and I thought, you know, once a year, there should be one child like chosen at random from the country who gets to go to the Springfield Museum and actually wear Abraham Lincoln's actual hat as they recite the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> so they really get a sense of, of more, it's not just the words, like he, he did wear that hat when he said those words. And so what's the connection? Like, is there, is it trivial or is it, anyway, I don't know what got me on this, but it just, that was like the t-shirt was like, put some external, I, yeah, detail that makes it real scary.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I, I relate to that in the, in the sense that uh, in, in, one kind of theater method that dominates, or has dominated, um, in the states is the this Stanislavski Stanislavski technique, or this idea of um, uh, Robert De Niro doing getting gaining the weight yeah. for Daniel or Lewis Daniel Day, you know that that. So I find it fascinating to go from the opposite direction, yeah. <laughs> go from the external to the internal. I mean, the Balinese theater—they they study that, so it's not not such a um, radical idea. But but I think an American. So, in some American traditional acting, um, it comes out of this idea of how, how you change your interior. Um, so, I do like the Abraham Lincoln hat on your head thing. Yeah, um, I don't know
0: how I got on that. Yeah, well, anyway. What yeah. was your
1: question? Yeah, let's go back to John. Are we straying?
0: I feel like <laughs> we've strayed from the, from the
2: road.
1: Let's go back to John. I
2: don't know, I've always uh, been frustrated by the films in the American canon that are celebrated because they are celebrated for these performances. And it yeah. doesn't do much for me, you know, like yeah, this yeah. Um, Martin Scorsese way of just having like loud aggressive men speak with New Jersey accents. and exactly. I don't know like how this developed as being what we symbolize as great performing now, but mm-hmm. I've been really happy to see in cinema actors like Philip Seymour Hoffman and you know, Quinn Phoenix start to become more celebrated because okay. they're bringing some sort of like Internalized nuance, almost like a throwback to the Cassavetes era. Oh, yeah. Which I, yeah. I have only really seen in Mugglecore films. Yeah. Mm. Anybody doing that? It's, yeah, it's been
1: Yeah. a really
2: nice break from, the, yeah.
1: Mm. from good, that.
2: Yeah. I don't know anything about theater, but I, I do watch a lot of films. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I'm starting to think puzzles me about you guys, or maybe it's what I admire about you guys, <laughs> is that you're absolute purists, but you're also so free. Mm-hmm. And this is what's interesting to me because I, I had asked about this this question about journalism and truth because you are very committed to being true to what you're representing and true to what you're performing through. And you aren't looking to play with reality. You're with the question of fiction. But mm-hmm. at the same time, that doesn't seem to bind you. Right? It doesn't mm-hmm. seem to bind the work. I mean, I haven't actually seen any of your work. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> you know, having having <laughs> read your, your texts and seen your lecture now, it almost feels like you, you find a way to see accuracy mm. as being liberating mm. and not, not imprisoning. Mm. And that's that's really unique. I, I can't really think of anybody else that, in my mm. mind, has, has gone... in Thank that you. Angle. Is that, is that yeah. a total misreading? You have a look on no. your face. No, no, is, no, no. The no. listeners can't hear it, can't no. See it but.
1: <laughs> no, no. Um, uh, but, but I just want to make sure that uh, I understand. When you say accuracy or curious can you just talk a little well, bit about that you could
2: have gotten a, a different version of that t-shirt mm-hmm. that wasn't the one she wore oh I see I see yeah. I or see, you I say see. That. And yeah. that would raise a whole other level of questions about right. you know, veracity and whatnot. But I see I see yeah, what yeah, you're yeah. saying okay. I'm actually quite bored with the uh, you know hoaxes when I was younger I was really into oh it's like a secret society it's really just one person and you know all these yeah. sort of projects like what Tom McCarthy was doing in the UK and it, yeah. it sounds like a lot of fun but it's it's almost like the the true challenge is, mm-hmm. is going into what what is real or, and not asking what is reality but actually right. just saying well this this is what we're working with yeah
1: yeah yeah, yeah.
2: There's not really a question.
0: You know, a few years ago, this term comfort zone came out, like, came about, like people started talking about their comfort zones. Which we saw some
2: people out of theirs the other night, I think. Yes. <laughs> uh,
0: but I never really understood that. I was like, what is that, comfort zone? Do I have one of those? Yeah. Does that, I, I don't, then I realized, oh, it's like, oh, if you're like a writer, your comfort zone is writing, and then you're out of your comfort zone. Or if you write prose, you're out of your comfort zone if you're going to write. Sort of the, the, out of your
2: uh, act of creating comfort zone as opposed to being an audience member uh, being hit with fake blood or... Yeah, I, or well, blood I,
0: I didn't understand it. Yeah. You know, I never understood what that meant. And I, because I didn't feel like I really, I really had one of those. Um, and that, or that comfort wasn't a zone. It was like a temporary... Because that sort of suggested that every time... It was like you could go back there, and you would always feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, if maybe I was, I felt comfortable writing yesterday. I don't know if I'm going to feel comfortable writing tomorrow. I hope I will. But, I, but I think too, though, so there's a sort of anxiety about the comfort zone, like, or you were you talking about expertise, like, um, an interruption. And it's, it's like I think it's good to actually force yourself to do the things that you're good at. Mm-hmm. Sort of long, to, to develop
2: all the virtuosity.
0: Yeah, but to uh, maybe stay with it longer than you think, then it's comfortable. Mm-hmm. Like, or to or I to go it's to go into yeah. it. It's not about technique, but sort yeah, of to go into your what you're. I, I just see there's so much um, avoidance. Like people are afraid. I feel more often. People are afraid of their comfort zone like they're afraid of they're afraid of taking seriously what they're really good at because of where it'll go. like if you really take it seriously, really,
2: how far
0: can you can you go with this? I think
2: you're defining it in a, in a better way because to most people, if you changed roles and you were the director and you were the performer, that would be outside of your comfort zone right but that's like a very superficial reading. That's just you know, yeah. throwing yourself into an unfamiliar task yeah. and it would be much more interesting to see how you can challenge yourself as a director and you can challenge yourself as a performer and pointing to the people who traditionally do these things. Yeah. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. But that's also... But I think
1: there's a... blind. Don't you think that oftentimes there's a blind spot to... If something comes maybe easy to you or you're you're good at it, you think... Somehow you don't value... A lot of people don't value it. You
0: don't think it's worthwhile. Well, you think that you have to work... I guess maybe that's the other... Yeah, yeah, I think... Inflection. The other has to way hard. to approach it is that, like, um, you might be the things you're really good at. You might not value because they come so easily Easy. to you,
1: yeah.
0: uh, And you can't can't imagine anybody else sees the value in that because you didn't struggle to attain that skill. Um, those are the things that, if you can value, then you suddenly can accomplish. That it can, becomes kind of scary
2: but should you look for a struggle
0: no the struggle no I mean you yeah I think struggle is overrated
1: yeah
0: that's like that's (laughs) where Lynn as a director is so disorienting sometimes because she'll she'll say to you like well you know you're really good at walking across the room or something like that you know a lot of people aren't really good at that and you'd be like I just walked it's just walking across the room she'd be surprised a lot of people really can't do that So what do I do with that? She said, "Well, you could, you know, you're going to walk across the room ten thousand times, and then, you know, or some. That's not a very good example, but it's it's sort of a transformation from the inside, I suppose, of revaluing. Does this? I feel like I'm not expressing this very well.
1: I I totally relate to it because I do. I I tend to dismiss what comes easily to Mm -hmm. me.
2: Is, is that a cultural baggage? Because we we're, we're, we put artists on this pedestal, master craftsmen, and having Malcolm Gladwell's ten thousand hours of expertise, you have to get through. Is that, is that you think it's, it's because we have this almost residual guilt uh, things that you see to us? I grew up Catholic, by the way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that teach, yeah. You two have to to commune. The, the, she's the one
2: saying <laughs> the, the non-Catholic is the one saying she um, sees.
1: I don't have sure. a lot of guilt um, like Matthew does with... Well, I don't know if you have guilt, but I mean, the, the, the Protestant thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I grew up Protestant for not very long, though. I didn't grow up in a religious... We should era. have all been Quakers, I think. Oh, yeah, I know. I agree. That Quaker thing sounded great when... this I artist do think was, there
0: is a different sense of the social... From the non-Catholics of the of the uh, secular.
1: But should we go? Do you want to go over? Social structure. That we can talk about that. Yeah, later.
0: because I think it very much influences performances and how you put them together as public events. That you know you're not interested in the in in the ritual as much as the social um, declamatory like presentational, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and it 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 you know, it binds
2: well with um,
0: a sort of Catholic... Um,
2: but that makes the struggle more deaths. appealing, you think? Because you, you recognize that this idea of the struggle is appealing to you, but you, you want to fight that impulse in yourself, right?
1: Well, well, um, it, through time, I have uh, come to value not struggling. Or, or I mean, uh, um, it... There, there's there's always different struggles. It's just this idea of I mean I I see it a lot teaching. It is so um, it, teaching in an art school. It's so prevalent that or pervasive, so pervasive that my students um, do not value what they do well. and they so so and that they do not trust that at all. They only tr- they. Tend to trust um, what is hard for them, and they tr- they tend to equate truth as something someone telling them the truth as being it, it should hurt
0: mm-hmm.
1: because if you're if you're um, if if you're trying to be constructive, it translates to praise, and that's not. Truthful, mm-hmm. but it, but it's interesting to me how that's conditioned. Mm-hmm. I feel I can see how it's been taught. But um,
2: they also are going to art school or to to school in general, so they want to learn something new, not be told to be yeah. That's true. Good at. that's true. That's
1: yeah. true. That's true. So 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 the thing about doing what you're good at is it, or or going back to that idea, is that you have to keep that challenged mm-hmm. and growing. Um, so. It's not like it's, it. I think it's it becomes um, hybridized with other things, so that it keeps moving forward, and you keep learning. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think anything is interesting if you're not. For me, it's. I have to keep learning. Yeah, that's that's, my that's, idea. that's the same thing. But you, knowledge
0: you know? doesn't necessarily trans like contribute directly, like. Uh, you know, if you, it's so you accumulate all sorts of knowledge, and you read, and um, and you fill yourself up with ideas, and that's all important. But then the challenge, and the struggle, if it is a struggle, is to funnel all of that thought into that little narrow band of executing some thing that you do. Like, so, you're a cook, maybe. So how do you like bring your fascination with chemistry into your cooking or your fascination with, you know, the color spectrum or the, you know, so that's, that's the part that that's sort of, I think what I'm talking about, it's like, so I'm Mm -hmm. a performer, but I'm interested in all this in philosophy. So how do I bring, so it'll transform performing if I can find a way to import my interest in philosophy into that. Narrow band of what I do, or what I'm good at, or writing, or whatever. You know, I think that's sort of what I'm.
1: I mean, there's a cliche about. in relation to that in the sense of saying that you have to forget all of that yeah. when you're. Um, you have to forget... if if we're going to talk about the studying and the philosophy and all these things. The that unlearning we, the, yeah, learning. that you. Yeah, that yeah. when you get in the room. Um to make something or create something, or yeah. yeah, to create something, you have to forget all that, but i th- I think um it's to me not so much about forgetting, but um it I think allowing uh yeah, allowing other things in when or.
2: Well, it's back to this idea of bewilderment, isn't it? Yeah. Of, of consciously embracing yeah. the unknown. And, and it yeah. becomes increasingly difficult to do that when you've been doing one skill for 30, 35 years. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, when I right. was involved more with music and had improv workshops, you know, suppo- the, the supposed non-idiomatic improvisation, mm-hmm. which, of course, is completely an idiom of its own with mm-hmm. more rules and more rigidity than anything else. But it was always the people who would come from maybe professional musicians, jazz musicians, that were always the most difficult to embrace it. Maybe the same way that some theater students might not handle a performative lecture. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, and, right. Well, that's fascinating. And that's such
2: a classic thing to say, yeah. you need to unlearn these, you need to unlearn jazz scales. Yeah. But I mean, on, on that level, yeah. But I think what you're talking about is maybe something underneath It's something a bit deeper. Yeah. That is more about how our, our, our brains, like, on a very structural level, approach creativity. Right, Because exactly. the yes. skills and the layers of musicianship or yeah. acting or performing are just really just an yeah. affectation of, of human existence. As you know.
0: yeah. It's a, there's a, yeah, there's a fascinating phenomenon, and um, Alva Noe is writing a lot about this now. He's a philosopher from Berkeley. Um, but trying to really understand what happens when, when you first see a gallery show, let's say, and it's not one of those shows that you instantly love or hate but it's just one that you sort of can't make sense out of or it's just somehow puzzling or you don't think there's much going on there at all well that's
2: exciting to me
0: yeah and then but then when when does that what exactly happens when gradually or suddenly you remember that show and you come back and look at it and it's different it feels different and then it starts to feel important and then it starts to feel crucial and what is what is happening in that in that shift, right?
2: Yeah, my, my line, if you, if you meet me in the last two years and you have met me in the last seven days, um, is that I've, I've been having a somewhat crisis of faith myself with the whole world of art and, and music and everything. And that's because I've been struggling to find something that is meaningful and valuable out of most things I see. And this p- puzzlement would be exciting because that's something. Mm. Usually if I go to an art exhibition, my only thought is, I am at an art exhibition. Yeah, and I can't. If I hate something, that's fantastic. If yeah. I love something, that's fantastic. Yeah. And if I'm puzzled, that's fantastic. But yeah. It's, it's this. Usually, feeling, you don't
0: have any of that.
2: It's total neutrality. I feel completely dead, and yeah. I don't know if I should try to find a way to see that as a positive. Because when you talked about meaning last night, or the other night, whenever the lecture was, yeah. uh, this idea to get away from meaning that's maybe a different type of meaning, I guess, because I'm only from sort of personal value, which might be completely incomprehensible. The second lecture in your book, the butterfly lecture, wasn't incomprehensible, but it was dense, mm-hmm. and it was packed, and it had a sort of momentum to it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I'm going to have to reread that 20 times to mm-hmm. really look at all the possible ways it, it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, while I didn't feel any obvious line of thought come out of it for me, that was at least something there. You know, yeah. it made me want to go back and, and dig into it. Oh, thanks. But generally,
1: yeah, generally I just can't find the it, You know, I, something, um, this seems like a non-sequitur or outside of what we're talking about, but somehow I think it relates in the sense that, um, I, I th- in anything you're doing, this is a contradiction, um, with this idea of um, embracing what you know how to do, um, but I think you always have to be a beginner too, and you have to you have to know how to do that i, I think everybody's different on how they um how to be a beginner how to begin oh, I like that. because i but i do i th- i think um i i get most excited when um i am Again, this is learning something. I'm a beginner at something. I that really brings my attention forward. So, so this thing of um, I know what you're talking. You know, when when I've seen a million performances, um, I there's something about not being a beginner at looking at performance. Oh. There, there's something that's inside of me. Um, yeah, it's like the way. That-
2: filmmakers watch films and they just complain about the lighting. yeah the yeah why would you use that camera angle yeah. and you can't actually get into the film because you're you have the baggage right yeah. you're right that so, happens, yeah.
1: so yeah, I mean that does happen to me but then I I, I the the thing about um, creating or making a performance is bringing that um, I have to feel like I'm beginning again and beginning again um, I I mean, within one piece, by the way. So, but I do think that um, I consider when looking at um, performance, which I look at a lot because I teach it, too, and so, but how to be a beginner at looking. I mean, how do I bring that again? Uh, So, so... I don't have the answer to that, but I do think it's a good question um, because I do want to keep looking at art, and I want to keep looking at performance, and... Um, you get
2: jaded though, right? I mean, you must feel overwhelmed and burnout. You've been doing it a lot longer than me.
1: Um, I don't really do... I don't really get jaded, do I? Do I? I mean, I don't think... A j- I... I... You know, I think... Ultimately... Um, Oh, how do I, I, I feel like a creative endeavor, when someone makes a cre- creative endeavor, I don't know, I feel like um, it deserves respect. Uh, whatever, I mean, I, maybe that comes out of being an uh, educator or being in a classroom, that when I'm negotiating, I'll, people who are making gestures and someone doesn't like it or it feels like a beginning one or it feels offensive even. Um, but, but to try to bring respect to that act. Um, and I think it comes to a belief that we... Uh, I, I still feel like the imagination is really important to have, um, to value. So I don't know why we're over here but I think I'm going to stop here. I, I, but, I mean, because I don't know why I got over there, but I, it was mostly in response. The, this idea of be trying for myself, yes, I do get, to answer your question, yes, I do at times, like I don't want to see another performance. So that okay, so that's the answer So to that. And then what does that mean? It means I usually have to go back and see, okay, so, or if I'm in a situation where I'm going to be there for three hours, and there are these performances happening, um, how, um, how can I look at that as a beginner again? And that m- means that I can take something from it. Um, yeah.
2: I don't know that I have that respect for performance anymore. Uh-huh. But I usually have the respect for the people. Mm-hmm. a yeah. the performance and that's yes. a lot of times I don't go to things because I know I'm going to be a terrible audience member yeah mm-hmm. yeah well, that's uh, respectful yeah last year when I still was running parkgate we had a, a performer who was on, in residence and he and I got into a bit of a uh, discussion about this because he had done a performance somewhere some small theater in Estonia and he was complaining about how somebody brought a child to it and while he was doing his sort of very mm-hmm. process based mm-hmm. you know pattern movement mm-hmm. performance which required this very serious black box atmosphere, there was this little girl that was in the corner sort of playing and distracting. Mm-hmm. You know, he was really upset. He was like, I cannot believe you would do that. You know, How, how dare somebody come to a performance and, and disrupt it like that? Yeah. Whereas I felt completely the opposite. I thought like, what made that a performance was probably the child's presence. And mm-hmm. Not to say that I didn't respect what he did. I probably maybe didn't, but it was more that if you're going to make experimental performance art you cannot demand that much from your audience. It's like, if you go to do something in public space yeah. and there's drunk teenagers watching you do it and they start to disrupt you, you have to welcome yeah. that. You mm-hmm. can't get angry about it. You know, how dare they just not respect my performance that nobody asked me to do that they didn't buy a ticket to? That, mm-hmm. you know, that level of respect, I think, okay. is what I don't yeah, have yeah. anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's why, you know, I don't go to performances that much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's okay to take some time off. Um, but yeah, I agree with that. And uh, having been a performer in situations quite frequently where there are kids and other distractions, that we have somehow, you know, when you describe that, it's like, it's very difficult to say where, what's the performance and what's the context. I sort of think, you know, 90% of the performance is the context. Yeah, I said,
2: if you want complete control, make a film. Otherwise, why are you doing ephemeral work? Yeah. It has to yeah. be about oh, the Totally. it's
1: yeah. live, I mean that. Because
0: then it becomes to. a challenge to make, to compose a, a work that can accommodate the unknown X quantity, mm-hmm. whether it be a kid or the sound of, a, you know, the, how, whatever, the room noise <laughs> or whatever. There are no microphones when you go to do a talk show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think about, you know, I think about Morton Feldman's music and how that. A byproduct of his lifelong fascination with working that uh, threshold of audibility and very reduced means of um, uh, m- musical material, you know, just a few notes in a very narrow melodic range, somehow opens a lo- opens a kind of allowance for room noise or children mm-hmm. crying or bird songs. and it doesn't lose its musicality. And the number of people, thousands of people who didn't hear the music in his music at first. And that, when you talked about that, my second essay, The Butterfly, um, in that book, The Brightest Thing in the World, that was uh, that was written after reading everything W.G. Sebald uh-huh. wrote. I've been in that
2: process, too, of devouring all the Sebald I could possibly find.
0: And I think Sebald and... Feldman have this some strange thing in common, which to me is like the sense that the center has somehow been removed, and we're just camped out on the peripherals of some mysterious thing. That's Saturn, in fact. Yeah, exactly. That's absented, um, and then you get to the end of the book, and you again have, or the piece of music, and you again have that feeling of, I feel like I missed some huge thing, but what I was taken through was somehow. I couldn't take my eyes off it, or i couldn't stop i couldn't it was so immersive and absorbing, so it it makes me think that again it, that immersion and that absorption has something to do with not with knowledge
2: Well, it's an essay about symbol that doesn't really mention him, I mean right, so you yeah. did that into construct I don't know if that was like a yeah yeah,
0: it was it was sort of a constraint, but um that the peripherals of they somehow translate, that sense of attention to the peripheral somehow translates to the, the rhythm or the momentum or something like that, that. That those things that are that were previously considered byproducts are actually the most important part.
2: Yeah, we were going to festival around the theme of decentralization. That was the methodology we tried to employ. Yeah. So the whole idea was that instead of having one venue the city center. Yeah. We were going to try and find all these little suburban locations and mm-hmm. private houses and just places things don't happen. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it worked or not. That's. that's I like that
1: idea. Mm-hmm. It well,
2: certainly the, seems to be something that's happening everywhere. In digital culture. Yeah. It's just I mean, it's, it's obviously the way the world is becoming. And yeah.
1: It's the philosopher writer Slaughterdyke mm-hmm. who Peter talks Soledad. about mm-hmm. yeah talks yeah, about foam as being um, globalization, he describes it... Um, as, a,
0: as like foam. As foam, like foam. As a way, foam. A, a way foam. To think about Foam, it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: You know, Bubbles. I mean, because of these... Yeah. 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 I like
0: that. You know, but some things sometimes... Yeah, so if you're if you're engrossed by Sebald, to me it's a very exciting project to try to just... Stewardship, I guess, was the term that uh, the Quaker term. The, the Quaker, Quaker term, term of like, but right. to do to do your own work, but have it be a sort of oma, you know, like how do you migrate or funnel all of that, you know, those four novels into, uh, you know, four page prose, or you know, or or a public, uh, a sort of curation or some other act, right, some other thing.
2: To go back a second to the. Uh, sort of cynicism and frustration with performance actually this topic is boring we don't have to go back to it but I there's a point sometimes at which I feel almost like a conservative reaction in myself mm-hmm. and I'm starting to try to enjoy those those reactions instead of being embarrassed by them mm-hmm. I don't know exactly if I could give an example but maybe um, in music coming from a Background, but I went to a lot of very very minimal experimental shows. Morton Feldman made me think of this. Mm-hmm. I remember maybe ten years ago in Pittsburgh, I went to see I think it was Annette Krebs and um, Chris Forsythe playing tabletop guitars in some Chinese restaurant that was having shows in the back, mm. and it was super 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 quiet. Mm. And I got there in the Chinese restaurant. I bought a, a soda or something, a glass of water maybe, and I remember going into the room where the four audience members were. And I sat down carefully in my folded, metal, uncomfortable chair, without making any noise, listening to this music that was essentially nothing. Every 90 seconds, there would be like, bing. You know, like, and that, there's something amazing about that, that tension, that, that you know, uh, being there live. And I remember at one point, I moved my glass of water and the ice cubes clinked together. Mm. And two of the four audience members turned around and gave me the shush motion. Like, how dare your ice cubes drown at this <laughs> performance. And at that point, I thought, okay, this is ridiculous. I'm done. I'm not I'm sick of this. I want to go see a rock band right now. And, I, I, and then I look back at that time and think of like that moment of just giving up on something I loved and believed in because of a very quotidian, very normal reaction that like my grandparents would have. Like, what is this? This is nothing. It doesn't sound like anything. Why am I here? I'm going to go do something fun. It actually felt really good. <laughs> like, and that happens to me all the time. It's like, yeah. why am I watching this person pile wood in piles in a theater? Like, it doesn't mean anything to me. I'm gonna go get drunk. You know, it, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, I, yeah. Can that be? Is that cynicism or no? no I think it's, I think it's, that's it's a a, choice.
0: I think it's skepticism, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's it's uh, it's good. It because it's like it's a sort of sensitivity to. Uh, Dogma, I dogmatization of the
2: avant
0: garde y- y- uh, of something yeah. like because as I was saying like to me the whole what's attractive about music that's at that threshold of audibility is the clinking of the ice cube mm-hmm. the accidental becoming music that was the whole point of the four thirty three experiment yeah. was that we attend to sounds it's that the music is in us not in the in the notes. It's it. in our quality of attention. So for some people to shush you is it's, it's become a dogma. It's become yeah. a, a kind it. of yeah. orthodoxy. An orthodoxy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So skepticism yeah. is the healthy response to that.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I saw a, a Bernard Gunther performance in the late 90s at this festival, which consisted of Bernard Gunther playing pre-recorded music through a sound system, maybe just off of a CD. He's the guy that did the famous CD that The Pressing Plant Refused. Well, they called him and said you forgot to put any music on it. Mm. And it's I actually have a copy of it, which I don't even know why because it's it's so c- barely audible. Mm. And it was the same situation where it was a, a performance in an auditorium. Everybody's sitting in these theater seats, just looking at nothing, and listening to almost nothing through a PA system. I started to get physically sick. I was actually just getting sick from a flu or something, <laughs> and I had to escape to go to the toilet and throw up. And I had to get out of that room without making any sound. And, yeah. you know, you can raise the questions, was it even a performance if somebody just hits play on a laptop or whatever, yeah. that, that was all there and still relatively new for me at that time because that was before everybody was just using laptops. Yeah. But really, I look back on that now and think that it was, it was an escape act. It, it forced me <laughs> to try and, you know, escape a performance before you throw up without mm-hmm. making any sounds. And eventually I got to the door, and it's like a big fire door, you know, you had to kind of like push open, and there's just no way around it, I had to get out of there, and I'm sure people were furious when I left, but yeah, I don't know, like that in a way became like a, a challenge, and maybe that was, maybe that was the first time I ever experienced performance art, or or participatory art, without it intending to be either, because I had to perform and participate, through yeah. something outside of my control.
1: I, I, uh, you know, you've heard this from us, but...
2: But the listeners uh, probably haven't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but no but this idea of hospitality or generosity in work I oh, yeah,
2: was that phrase? maybe there's radical hospitality
1: yeah oh, that I mean, that we that. have to find I, I think I felt it means
0: never turning anyone away so you know so the refugees or the uh, like uh, everyone is a, is a, is an accept, uh, well, be, no one is not an acceptable guest or deserving yeah, of your yeah. oh, whatever you can give
1: yeah I I do have Um, response or reaction to work that's not generous or is not hospitable now you know um what is hospitality that's that's a cool question of how everyone each person defines hospitality for themselves but um because i think there is is it in the you know this but in the Uh, I know that Derrida writes about this. Is it where, and we've also talked to people about this, where um, it's when someone comes into the house that you you don't ask them what they, that the asking of what they want is a defiance of, of hospitality. Oh, that's what? I don't think that's I, that,
0: that's I I was there's a sort of Asian approach to hospitality which is the suggestion that no guest comes in and you you don't say like um, you don't give them it's violent to give them a menu of choice and say would you like your eggs you know over easy yeah, yeah. or hard boiled yeah, yeah. or soft boiled yeah, yeah. or and you've got like 20 options for eggs tell me, and you have to tell me by 9 o'clock tonight which one you want. Oh, exactly. the
2: Italian-American approach is the complete opposite of that. All right. It's like, <laughs> this is what you're going to get. Yeah. If you but, ever, ever in Pittsburgh, give my mom a call, she'll, she'll make you eat. And you won't have a no choice.
0: So, the, so the, uh, the, the correct hospitable approach is to say, um, these are the 20 choices of eggs uh, I suggest for tomorrow that you try the poached <laughs> and you know, but you can do one of the others if you want, and so it 's sort of like in between right in, so i mean
1: but but i I think my point i find all i find so, it's really it's, fascinating these different yeah. levels of hospitality, or these different ideas of hospitality, but i think um more importantly is in performance or in um Visual art, or I, I don't know. When I when I sense some consideration for hospitality or generosity, some some consideration mm-hmm. that usually that helps. Maybe I should just mm-hmm. say that helps.
2: Have you ever seen PME Arts Hospitality performance in no. Montreal, group with Jacob Ryan? Uh, no. 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 That that I would say if I have like a pantheon great works of art that would, if I go to performance heaven uh-huh. that would probably be there for me which is sort of an investigation of collaboration and hospitality mm-hmm. uh-huh. which is also mostly just them playing records and talking about them which is what they did in another yeah. performance but yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah yeah, that had a huge huge impact on yeah. me yeah. Yeah. because I'm always looking for something that is directly communicative that you don't need to understand deep theories or history of uh, art uh, you know I, I always say actually uh, here uh, at Pixel Lake uh-huh. whenever we trying to articulate what our projects are. Sometimes I ask, how would you explain this project to your grandmother? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah of and course. That's yeah. that's something yeah. that's easy to forget. Yeah.
0: Or how would you how, how would you um, give the, give a pre-show announcement mm-hmm. that could include your grandmother. Like because we you know, I think our aesthetic is like the performance as the sort of extreme somewhat theatrical event. And I've talked a lot about Morton Feldman, but we had Joan of Arc and a, our last performance, and it was really loud, and it was songs. Did you pass out earplugs? We passed out earplugs okay. in the pre-show announcement. Okay. So it's like, so how does this? How do you give the pre-show announcement that can um, make the outsider and the insider both feel welcome mm-hmm. to this event? How do you, can you be sensitive to? And it was the option offered of earplugs. Um, to people that I came out, that I come out when we do that show and make a pre announcement and say, anybody would like to have these here clothes. I suggest you take them and you don't have to use them. Um, and which was, would never happen at a Joan of Arc concert to their regular audience. So it had, to, you know, it, it's keeping a sense of what the work actually might be to people who've never seen anything like it before. Um, cause like the shush of the, like, the thing about the shush of you in the Chinese restaurant concert is like, is that presume that sort of presumes that you're an outsider when you're not, I suppose. like Nobody's
2: going to see in that Crabs and Chris Forsyth in Pittsburgh in 2002, unless they know what they're going to see. No one's finding that. It's, in- it's just baffling how estranged
0: that reaction is from the
2: actual, like...
0: I mean, I can understand a a certain level of disruption sort of crossing a line, but, um, yeah, but anyway.
2: But that that, that thing I'm searching for, this sort of something that is honest, direct, while still being challenging, innovative, formally, aesthetically unusual, that, I think that came out of these sort of reactions, I started to feel. And at Mm -hmm. first I was like, oh, God, I'm, I'm getting old, I'm becoming conservative, i I no longer want to listen to experimental music unless it's made by my friends. I just want to listen to Bob Dylan records. Mm-hmm. And now I'm actually seeing that as as again bringing this full circle. It's the reversal of course. Now it's like how can I take the 10 years where I watched every experimental film and I listened to every weird record and I you know I have all these obscure tastes that mean I cannot talk to the plumber anymore when he comes to fix my sink. I have no frame of reference because he doesn't want to talk about you know Hollis Frampton. So because yeah. of that, like. I Now I'm at a point where I want to find something that communicates to broader audiences but mm-hmm. doesn't compromise being really strange and really personal and really... and It has to be strange, you know? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know what my point is. I think I'm using this as therapy, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's... Yeah, I guess I've been feeling a backlash in myself and now I'm starting to see that that backlash can be something forward-thinking as well. Yeah.
0: yeah I think exactly. that um, when you mentioned Alice Frampton...
2: Not just a total random thing yeah about. no
0: I, it makes me think of um, the work of um, a woman uh, artist named Carrie tribe who i, I wrote um, a, a long essay about uh, an installation that she did called h m and she talks about when she talks about her work she talks about the the dual interrogation at work that there's um I don't want to lose my my train of thought, I think. Okay, so she talks about interrogating the material level, like your work, like her work at the celluloid level. Like if she's making a film, there's interrogation of celluloid as a material, but there's also an interrogation of the narrative that is presented, if there is narrative being presented, but they're both proceeding in parallel, and they don't always... It might be interference between those two interrogations. Um, so it's work that's about something, but it's also highly formal. And so there can be a sort of radical composition at the structural level, I think. Yeah. That's quite exciting to me in her work and in any work so that I think can be a kind of response to the fusing of like the passion for Bob Dylan and the intellectual need... For the, all the experimentation, mm-hmm. that's very exciting to try to to try to hybridize and fuse those two.
2: I've also been acknowledging the the third interrogation, which maybe would be the structure of an industry and culture that watches films, yeah. represents them in a gallery, or has you write an introduction to the, the whole context of art and culture that we are part of, yeah. which I used to find like I don't I wasn't interested in that, and now as I not really done anything except organise for a few years, I've started to sort of see that as something we all have to take on. And and the workshop the other day at, at Eskis was, mm. you know, qu- quite a lot about arts administration. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. but it wasn't boring to me, mm-hmm. you know, like it was it was almost more exciting than a lot of other talks could be if it yeah, was about yeah. something yeah. more yeah. practice-based. Yeah, great. But that's, you know, that's my practice, I suppose. Yeah.
0: You know, I was just thinking about um rich Maxwell wrote this book recently, I forget the title of it, but it's sort of like a little how to book for how to
1: directing
0: directing or theater and in in there he says um have the actors if you're an actor in a play, you should you know construct the set as well and then he was at. A reading and we asked him about this, and he said, "Well, I've never actually did that. I just wrote that in the book." But <laughs> I, it made me think. It's exposed. I don't want to like go off on this tangent story, but when I was in, but I will. I mean, I'll try to keep it short. But when I was in high school, I was excited. I was cast in as one of the leads in the George Washington Slept Here, which was a comedy, George Kaufman comedy, and um, but I was also in art class and the the teacher the drama teacher asked art students to make the set, and so I was like Rich said I was in the play but I was also I also volunteered to paint the set so me and my friend Ed got very excited about painting the rocks on the fireplace of this house where George Washington had slept and so we paint you know we started. And it's like we took like three days each to paint like one rock and they looked so real. We go back to the back of the theater and look at it, go out and paint it. And then the director came and was like, you know, at this rate, you know, we have to open the play in like two weeks, you guys. You're going to have to pick up the pace. So we, you know, we picked up the pace. And then I had to go out and act on the stage with this painted fireplace that I and Ed had painted with like two hyper-realistic rocks and then all the other rocks that looked like they were fake. And and I had to, like, live with that, you know, when I was acting. And it, and it, was, it was sort of internally humiliating. Nobody would know
2: unless I told them, right, except my friend Ed. Um,
0: so it's sort of like that, I, I guess. I've
2: just been revisiting uh, some of the films of Peter Greenaway, who oh, was, yeah. like, Actually, again, thanks to Laurie and Adam, they turned me on to Peter Greenway when I was in my early 20s, and that set me off, and I, we did my dissertation about him, and, I, and then I haven't really followed him for a while, but they showed some of his old films recently, a couple weeks ago, so I went to see, uh, see them. And then I started rereading the book of interviews with him, and he talks in this book about, oh yeah, you know, in Johnny by numbers, uh, I made sure that whenever Majid's bedroom was on screen, there were 100 objects that started with the letter M, in the background and whenever we showed smouts room there were 100 objects that started with the letter s and nobody except myself and the art director were aware of this but it was really important to me to do this and that is just so wonderful i absolutely <laughs> love that it's like we were talking in, in the megan's talk today about the backgrounds hmm. sometimes being more interesting than, than the foregrounds which yeah. is yeah. something that the little bit i know about like, the experimental theater performance it's uh i try to you know, my, my a friend of mine told me, I don't really know how to watch dance. And she said, try to just watch it with your peripheral vision and just uh, feel it rather than focus on it. That's,
1: that's a great yeah. idea. Mm-hmm. But it's really yeah, that's, difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. It's really difficult, but I yeah. try. Yeah, yeah. So. I don't know how to watch dance, I don't think. Well. <laughs> I mean, I'm more interested. Dance and then there's different kinds of the Dance, I know. Know. Yeah.
2: But I, Peripheral.
1: Peripherals. That's I, I think peripherals yeah. are really good.
2: Or like peripheral consciousness rather than peripheral. But exactly. You know, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Rise. But that's what, yeah. well. That that I think brings in this thing of um, the haptic also, or the body, or the if you're perif- if you're peripherally yeah. focusing. Yeah.
0: But it reminds me of Fanny Howe, the poet, was saying that she wants. Superficial readings of her poems, not to contradict more sort of studied, in-depth readings.
2: I uh, think actually, when I read poetry, I might read depending on the poetry. I might read it peripherally, mm-hmm. at least at first. Like if, I'm yeah, not going to tackle John Ashbery right away and go into what does the word "of" mean here. Yeah. I'm going to just feel it a few times. That's I've
1: true. Ended. I think like, that's true for me too. That's interesting.
2: Yeah. yeah. Peripherals, maybe. Maybe it's more about unconscious or subconscious or somewhere in mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. peripheral. Again, we're talking about like non-center periphery mm-hmm. it keeps coming back yeah well I don't know how, how much time you guys have it's been an hour so if you want to wrap it up we certainly can
0: I think that would be a good idea sure
2: yeah well I hope to see you next year we can do a follow-up podcast okay. <laughs> it's a day thank, thank you again for everything for the, the being on the show the think thank the lecture it's been a really really wonderful couple of days and thank you for this I will edit it carefully to take out all the horrible things we said and uh, Thank you, Jeff.